Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. This show is sponsored by Mark Drugs, who specialise in the custom compounding of medications, assuring that the client gets the proper prescriptions for their unique needs and conditions. They work with practitioners, integrating knowledge and treatment of experts to create comprehensive health plans. Visit markdrugs.com or call Roselle 630-529-3400 or Deerfield 847-419-9898. Today my guest is Dr. Naisha Winters and Naisha is an authority in integrative cancer research and consults with physicians around the world. Thank you for joining us today, Naisha. Absolute pleasure, Linda. Thank you so much for having me. And I should have also added there that you are one of our trusted, esteemed medical advisors and we, we thank you for that. Thank you. I learned so much from all of your team, so it's an honor. Thank you. So when a person is given a cancer diagnosis, in my experience, the world seems to stop spinning for a few seconds and your mind goes into overdrive thinking, oh no, I'm going to die. How long have I got left? What can people do when they've been diagnosed and still in shock? Wow, I think that you chose a nice juicy topic to dive into today. I think the, the, the thing I've experienced from walking this journey myself. So for your listeners to have a little background, um, at the age of 19, for many, many months, I'd been in and out of a hospital and ER setting to deal with symptoms that were not resolving. And and I just kind of got, I think, mixed up in the shuttle, shuffle of things of folks sort of downplaying my symptoms or just thinking part of old patterns related to endometriosis and digestive difficulties. And unfortunately, by the time it was big enough and loud enough to be very clear on what I was dealing with, it was actually too late. At that time, I was diagnosed with stage four end-of-life organ failure ovarian cancer. It had extended into my um, liver, all throughout my peritoneal cavity. It had created bowel blockages. It had starved me of all my nourishment, and it shut down my kidney function because I had a hydronephrosis that was blocking off my ureters. So I was in such a bad state by the time they did figure out what was going on, plus extreme pain and a giant grapefruit-sized tumor on my right over uh, met everywhere. By the time they figured out what was going on, I was actually too sick to get treatment, and they sent me home to die. And that was the moment when you talked about that sort of out-of-body shock experience. I recall that so so vividly. And you yourself before the interview shared that experience with yourself and your mother. And everybody I meet tells me their shock story around the diagnosis of of cancer. And really what I've come to learn in nearly 30 years of this journey is that the biggest medical emergency is the cancer diagnosis. Okay. And let me, let me repeat that again. The biggest medical emergency of a cancer process is the actual diagnosis. 
And by what I, what I mean by that is that it's in that moment that our bodies will have an incredible response, okay? Good, bad, ugly, shut down, you know, launched into action. We'll all have a different response and reaction. But ultimately, that initial shock absorbent, um, there's, you know, there's a, a really lovely woman. I've been following her work and have become friends with her over the years, um, Sophie Savage. She actually wrote a book about life shocks and about how a diagnosis can sort of be the thing that paralyzes you or invigorates you. And I think her work is really powerful, and she's out of the U.K., and I follow her. Um, she, she lectures worldwide and speaks to this so very much because ultimately, as Sophie says and so many others like her, we're all going to die. That's like, that, those are two things that are guaranteed, you know, maybe three, but two for sure. We're born and we die. And other, a third might be that we have to pay taxes. I mean, that's like you're that joke all the time. Um, but ultimately, those are things we can't get away from. But when you have a diagnosis of cancer, you're suddenly looking at your mortality way more frankly, way more in the face. And the, the end is, is definitely more palatable, like you know it's coming in a different way. And so when I talk about that this is the medical emergency, it's when someone gets absolutely stuck in that shock, stuck in that trauma, stuck in that fear, stuck in that immobility and that inertia that basically renders you useless mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and definitely useless with regards to your immune system because that major shock to the system completely dismantles your immune reaction. Also, that incredible shock when it hits you stimulates all kinds of growth factors, that sort of fight or flight, but it's sending those signals to the cancer cells, telling them to to kick it up, to move, to move about the building, to, to progress, to um, advance, metastasize. That's what stress does. Cortisol and all of those chemicals that are released in a high-stress shock environment are actually cancer cell proliferators. So, yes, we all can have that initial response of a shock, but I'm always trying to encourage people, get out of that place as quickly as possible because it is that our response and how long we stay in that response will absolutely have, um, a, will impact our outcome. So, yeah. I didn't know if you wanted me to go beyond that, oh, but yes, ultimately, please, yes. mm-hmm. yeah, sure. So, you know, when folks hit that, that opportunity is what I call it, that um, it's, it's when we get stuck in that place that will actually worsen our outcomes. When we're under high stress, we de- our blood sugar goes up, which feeds cancer processes. Our immune system goes down, as I said. Our cells start to move about the building. So those are the things we want to avoid as quickly as possible. Also, high stress kicks up inflammation, specifically in a marker we can measure called C-reactive protein. We want that to be a really good, normal marker for you to have better outcomes because guess what? Standard of care therapies like chemo and radiation do not work as well when we have high um, C-reactive protein in our blood. We actually have poor prognosis and we have more drug resistance and more drug side effects when we're in that inflammatory state. The same goes if our cortisol is shot up, which is our stress hormone. When our cortisol is shot up, so our, our you know, uh, uh, the suppression of our immune function, so that, of course, causes worse outcomes. And also when cortisol is high, our blood sugars are high. 
And as I said before, um, that's a driver of many metabolic pathways as well to this. So I want people to start to think about their thought process. So perhaps your first instinct when you're diagnosed is to go immediately into treatment. But I always tell people to take a moment, take a deep breath, because your response may literally make or break your outcome. And so, for instance, on my website, drnasha.com, D-R-N-A-S-H-A.com, I have a free little downloadable handout called the five steps, you know, where to start after, five, you know, diagnosed with cancer, the first five steps. And it really outlines, it's free, it's for you to share with yourselves, with your loved ones, with your doctors, but it's basically strongly encouraging you to, number one, take a deep breath and don't react. Be still, start to gather all your information before you make a decision. Pull together your STAR team. And in that STAR team, that may be that you bring on a therapist, a trusted advisor, a, a, a spiritual you know, a guide, someone from your church that you trust. You have to tend to that shockwave on the emotional, spiritual level right away so you can better make more thoughtful, well-designed decisions that are not out of fear and reactivity, but out of knowledge and a place of calm and clarity, which will also have a better outcome. And then the other piece is people, I think, in our culture today, believe that you go to bed one night without cancer and wake up the next day with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at that time of the diagnosis, you know, everyone's in this panic of get it out, get it out, do something, kill it, get rid of it, you know, this invader. You have to remember this process has been going on for, per research, likely somewhere between seven and ten years before it's gotten big enough and loud enough to capture your attention. And usually it's somewhere between six months and two years before the actual diagnosis that you've had some big experience, whether it's another life shock in another form, maybe a loved one's illness or the loss of a relationship or a job that's been incredibly over-the-top stressful that really was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back that really got the ball rolling to make this cancer, you know, bring it to your awareness, okay? And so knowing that it took you several years to grow it means you've got some time unless in those really rare, rare, rare circumstances that it's occluding valuable real estate, like pushing up against an organ and causing a blockage or, you know, shutting off a blood supply, then obviously those are medical emergencies that must be tended to. But those are less than 1% of the time in all cancer diagnoses for an original diagnosis. Those obviously deal with, but the rest of you need to take a moment and really, like I said, take a breath, get quiet, get clear reacting, start responding. Gather your team of experts because you're going to have, depending where you live on this planet, if you have a a medical system that's covered by your government, you're going to have a certain thing of pros and cons there. If you live in another part of the world where you have to pay insurance, you have some pros and cons there. If you live in other parts of the world where your access to medical care in general is really limited, you have to weigh in the pros and cons there. But ultimately, know that there's likely not one single provider that can supply all of your needs. So I always really encourage people to pull together. Like you need the doctor who's going to order your labs and order your diagnostic imaging and um, help you interpret those labs and imaging. 
and maybe prescribe certain pharmaceuticals, be it standard of care chemotherapy or off-label drugs or radiation. And then you need the person who's expert at your mental emotional well-being. Again, a good friend, a spiritual advisor, a therapist, um, it, 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 depending on your belief systems, if it's something like an energy work, like somebody with Reiki, somebody who can help you tap into that stress response pattern and help you overcome it as well as help you explore the traumas and stressors that led to this diagnosis. And then you're going to need someone who's very integratively minded, who understands standard of care, um, you know, and understands the time and place for all those therapies, but also understands that especially if you have a very aggressive process, that your best bet is to bring on an integrative approach. So working with someone who has some deep understanding of um, supplements and herbs properly used and balanced with standard of care therapy, or even mistletoe therapy, which is one of my personal favorites that's well over 100 years old now um, as an ongoing standard of care addition of therapy, an adjuvant therapy for conventional cancer care um, that has helped patients all over the world for over a century at this point. We just celebrated its 100-year birthday. And then somebody who's got expertise in nutrition. And you know, just so your listeners know, your standard of care doctor and your RD nutritionist are not who you want to depend on for your nutrition support. They are, um, medical doctors, for instance, have little to no training. In the United States, less than 25% of medical schools even offer an elective course in nutrition. And it's really outdated and um, archaic and, frankly, based on industry. And by that, I mean that um, the people who are funding the studies to tell you how to eat are also the people making money from you eating that certain way. So RD nutritionists, for instance, are to toe the line of the hospital industry-driven education and nutrition, so they're not trained in actual therapeutic nutrition. So I really encourage you to work with a, a master's in nutrition therapy, somebody who's had expertise in actually learning how to use food as medicine, not just, just enough to prevent scurvy or rickets, right, which is where, unfortunately, most of our RD nutritionists have their training. Um, and so I know I upset a lot of people when I say that, but it's just a harsh reality. I, I've got a ton, I mean, at this point, well over 100 registered dietitians who call themselves um, recovered that are now going back to school and learning the biochemistry and the metabolic approaches to cancer and beyond to know how to really help someone in this situation in a therapeutic level as well as help enhance the therapies from standard of care. So an example of that really quickly for your listeners is fasting around chemotherapy is way better outcomes than going the, you know, to follow the bad advice of eat whatever you want, no matter what, don't lose weight. We find that these patients have better outcomes, less toxicities, what weight they do lose and the fasting, they gain it back. Those who stay with standard of care recommendations have worse outcomes, more side effects, have to spread out their therapies more, and tend to lose the weight and become more cachectic, meaning more metabolically um, broken over time, which is actually what can lead to their demise. So this metabolic muscle wasting process, when we take the bad advice of eat more and more and more calories and more and more carbs to prevent weight loss, is actually going to hasten the death in most cancer patients. So 
my point of telling this is bring together your strategic team. And it might even be family members and loved ones who help you grocery shop, or you pick out your favorite low-carb, healthy cookbooks, and you run copies of your favorite recipes and give it to your support team saying, hey, I want you to help bring me food to my family, but I have to have it to be food that helps nourish my body through this process. You know, don't feel compelled to eat the cookies and donuts that your friends bring you, which we know can en enhance a really poor outcome. So when you go and load, load down that five steps, I think it's going to give you some very focused strategies on what to do with this diagnosis and what to, where to start and how to build out your, your team, your tribe, if you will, that's going to help you have the best outcomes. But to fully circle back to where you started this conversation, Linda, was very much around dealing with the stress response. And one of the coolest therapies that I have been exposed to in my medical career is thanks to your work in educating and supporting this information is the addition of low-dose naltrexone in the majority of, these patient in the, of this patient population. And we know that it has really powerful immunomodulating things. So it can help a, an immune system that's overly aggressive in its autoimmune expression, which is known as a Th1 dominance process. But it can also stabilize when the body's in an overzealous Th2 dominant expression, which is what we see typically in cancer processes. So low-dose naltrexone acts like the perfect center of that teeter-totter to help balance and stabilize overactive and underactive immunity simultaneously. We know it has loads of impact on even inducing um, apoptosis, which is programmed cell death of those cancer cells. We know that it has access, um, availability to lower inflammation. So, so that C-reactive protein we talked about earlier, you can see that really come down nicely. But probably most important of what I see in my patient population when it comes to response to low-dose naltrexone is what it does for the psyche for the mental emotional body. And it took us a while to figure this out, but we've learned that it is naturally upregulating our innate endorphin system and our innate endocannabinoid system. And by that, I mean these are little signaling cell pathways within our body that we were all born with. And that for whatever reason of just many assaults to our system over many, many years, or medications, or traumas, or illnesses, those systems start, stop working as effectively and efficiently, and they start to downregulate. And so to give an example, when people have low endorphin function or low endocannabinoid function, they find it very difficult to find and access their joy, to find and access their gratitude, to find and access their purpose and to find and access their will to live and their resilience and their ability to stay grounded in the chaos and the overwhelm of such a life-altering diagnosis. And so I have found that it's, of course, very, very helpful on the physiologic and can definitely enhance um, the outcomes of my standard of care and even lower some of the side effects of standard of care. But likely more importantly to this population, this very vulnerable population, where our psychological well-being has just as much impact on our diet and our lifestyle and whatever functional, conventional treatments we might choose to bring on board for this diagnosis, low-dose naltrexone is really a helpful tool to help these patients thrive. Mm -hmm. 
Can I just ask one question? Um, when you're talking about nutrition and looking for a, a nutritionist to work with, while you're doing that, you know, should people be removing sugar from their diet while they're searching? I think that's a really good idea. We know that about 90% of cancers are, glyco are glycolytic, meaning they, they burn sugar very readily. And out of those, 70% of those cancers are very, very driven by insulin. So when you think about it, the vast majority of cancers are going to be very well served by lowering our sugar intake. Okay, and so that would be something where you may start by removing the obvious, removing any processed sugar, any fake sugars, you know, any candy, any junk food, any crap, you know, along those lines. But even for many of my patients, especially because one of the things I talk about in the five steps is to test, assess, address, don't guess. So take a look at your insulin levels. If they're above five, you're going to have to be more strict with your dietary issues. If, the, if your hemoglobin A1C is above five, more strict. If your insulin growth factor is well above 100, you're going to have to be more strict. And by that, I mean that you will likely have to forego all grains, all legumes, and all fruit for a period of time to get your um, blood sugar stabilized so that you have better outcomes and response to all of your therapies. And so, again, everyone's going to have a different set point here. You could easily start with that, knowing that you're going to likely have a positive outcome no matter what. Um, but then, depending on you, your individuality, your lab tests, even your epigenetics, and even your tumor type and the molecular markers of your tumor type, we can then determine how strict you need to be with regards to uh, dietary changes, such as um, going hardcore keto versus going more Mediterranean versus going more. Uh, you know, low-carb, paleo, you know, in, in those realms. My, my point is that all of these diets, the common denominator should be low sugar, if not no sugar, um, should be really high-quality, clean, seasonal, local where possible, okay? And for sure, be a plant-dense-based diet. So my, not plant-based as far as a vegan-vegetarian because those diets also tend to be quite high in sugar, but plant-dense in that, for instance, my patients, use plants as the base camp, but, you know, anywhere from 9 to 15 cups of, of vegetables a day. The next layer is high-quality, clean fats. And then the condiment on top of that is animal protein, be it an egg or some fish or a little dollop of red meat, depending on if that person has quality and access to good meat or on their SNPs or epigenetics, et cetera. And then literally the cherry on top may vary from person to person based on their labs. So I think just the simple recommendation of going – off the sugar for everybody is a good idea. And then depending how strict you need to be will depend on your biochemical individuality. Mm -hmm. And what about CBD used alongside of LDM? What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's, it's, I love that you bring that up because I talked about a moment ago, the, there's a lot of commonalities between folks with low endorphin function, so low joy in their life there, which is why LDN has such a powerful impact. There's also the low endocannabinoid function, so CBD can be very, very powerful for that. Now, it's interesting. I've learned from my colleagues over, over time at your conferences that we may or may not, depending on the person and the experience, want to um, alter the timing of taking those medicines. 
Um, and so clinically speaking, I've had plenty of patients taking both simultaneously for months and months and years on end with no seeming issues of it causing a contraindication. When we talk about sort of the scientific implications, it does make sense to me of maybe altering maybe one taken at night and one taken in the morning just to give different uh, receptor sites a little boost where needed. So perhaps taking the low-dose naltrexone at bed and the CBD in the morning or if you have symptoms and side effects of sleep disturbance, et cetera, of LBN, switch those around. Um, or even taking one for a few days, like the, the, the pulsing that we typically do with cancer, four nights on LDN, three nights off, on the three nights off might be the time to bring in your CBD. Again, it's going to depend on you, your goals of the therapy, and talking to your primary care to determine what's the best approach for you. But there's a lot of different ways to, to um, try this for yourself, to be in N equals one without causing harm. But I do know that they're very uh, simpatico, they're very, very synergistic, and they work on very similar mechanisms of the immunomodulation, the anti-inflammatory, and the mental-emotional support that's necessary. So I find they often work very nicely together. And I know you've written uh, several books um, on cancer and on yeah. mistletoe. Would you like to tell us about the books that people can find and learn more about treating cancer? Absolutely. The one book that's on the that's available to all of you right now is called The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. And this is co-authored with Jess Higgins Kelly, who was a nutritionist I brought into my clinic years ago. She helped co-facilitate retreats with me with cancer patients for years. She is a brilliant-minded nutritionist. She herself uh, her, has a company called Remission Nutrition and treats tons and tons of cancer patients nutritionally. Um, and she even started ONI, which is the Oncology Nutrition Institute, which is a postgraduate certification program for nutritionists, even re registered dietitian nutritionists who are interested in learning a more therapeutic diet approach for the cancer patient. Very cancer specific. It's the only one of its kind in the world, and it's a really amazing program. So you can look up OncologyNutritionInstitute.com, RemissionNutrition.com, and check out our book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. You can also find our Metabolic Approach to Cancer Facebook page, um, as well as Dr. Nasha um, Inc. Incorporated Facebook page. That's where you'll hear about all the next books coming on online, which by the fall of this year, in time of the 100-year anniversary of Mistletoe, um, a few of my brilliant world colleagues, um, experts in mistletoe therapy for cancer, we are co-authoring a book on the clinical applications, the history of, the research around, and the future of mistletoe therapy worldwide. So I'm very excited that that's coming out very soon. And then Jess and I have another book coming out basically called The You Diet, very, very individualized based on your SNPs, your labs, your tissue types, your molecular profile, your quality of health, your, your health, you know, your goals of your nutrition that we're writing is basically a manual for both the practitioner as well as for the patient because there's so much dogma and confusion about nutrition and we really want people to know there's sort of some general things to follow, but really we all need to individualize 
um, at different times to get the best outcome. And then we're also, I'm, I'm working on right now training physicians on how to approach their patients metabolically um, with cancer. So I'm doing a mentorship mind share group. The first class will graduate the end of April of 2020. I have a huge wait list of doctors that will be taking my program in September, and I hope to matriculate doctors twice a year from around the world to train them in how I test, assess, address, and manage patients with cancer from a metabolic perspective worldwide. And that has been a lot of fun. You can learn more on our website or go to my um, assistant, Christina, at info at drnasha.com to learn more about these trainings and programs. And of course, within that program, you will learn exactly how to employ things like mistletoe, low-dose naltrexone, CBD, a therapeutic diet, and many other aspects, along with learning a bit more about the epigenetics and the genomics and the patterns that drive a cancer process. So for this course, Nisha, do doctors around the world have to come to you or can it be done online? all online because that's the nature of our world today and especially with busy doctors um, both um, and busy, busy nutritionists that can take my colleagues you know uh, nutrition course online or my uh, physician um, mentorship mindshare course online so thank you for asking that because I know that that is definitely a, a rate limiting factor for many um, and we also have an ongoing kind of support forum so not only are you learning for yourself but you're you are communing with other physicians that are taking this information literally directly into their practice, applying it, collecting the data in real time, which is going into a database, collecting our retrospective, you know, for retrospective studies to really start to um, push the needle on the dial of changing the cancer conversation and changing cancer outcomes and hopefully preventing cancer, which is expected to plague 50% of the population starting in 2030. Mm -hmm. Now, the million-dollar question. Oosh. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say the success rate is of the patients that you help via, obviously, other physicians around the world? That is such a good question. And right now, because I've always been a clinician, not a, diet, a, a, a statistician, and I'm an, I'm an avid researcher and that I read, but I'm not a researcher with re regards to actually creating clinical trials within my own environment. Now, that's about to change. I'm partnering with some interesting organizations that are basically coming through and, and um, you know, mining my data, plus those are these physicians that I'm training so that we can start to really show these numbers in actuality, not in a guessing game, right? But let me give your listeners an example. Right now, across all tissue types, somebody with a stage four diagnosis of cancer, okay, some have better outcomes than others, but at the five-year mark, there's an average of a 12% survival rate. If you, if you clump all of the stage four cancer types in one bucket, only about 12% are still here in five years. Those are crappy statistics, in my opinion. You also have to remember that all people that have been diagnosed with cancer um, have a 70% chance of a second of a recurrence, 70% chance, also not good statistics. And for those who had previous cancer treatment, especially those who were pediatric, they have a 300% chance for a brand new 
secondary cancer, and we're almost at a 90 to 100% chance of any children treated for cancer in their youth to have a brand new cancer in the future based on that cancer. So hopefully that makes everyone realize that we need to be up in arms against this. So let me give you an example. In my, what I'm guessing by my outcomes that we can look at so far, at the five-year mark, we're seeing somewhere between 60 to 70% still here with a stage four cancer wow. type across all tissue types. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference. The same thing as the patients that come to me who've already had a previous cancer that I then come in and start to support them um, in understanding their terrain and preventing a recurrence. It's really, I mean, I, it's, I don't even know what the numbers would be, but I would say less than 10 to 20% maximum recurrence rate in that population versus the 70%. And then the brand new secondary cancers, um, you know, again, I don't, I've got 20 some years of my own data to kind of dig through, but I don't see that. I just have never seen a brand new secondary cancer in my practice of someone who started working with me after their first diagnosis and then had a brand new secondary one down the road. If, if any, there might've been one, if maybe two in my entire thousands and thousands of patients experience. So that's my hope is what we're starting to do with the data collection is that we're starting to be able to get real numbers to this. But from what I see and the outcomes I get and the testimonials I get and the feedback I get, worst case scenario, we're creating quality of life and we're for sure increasing quantity of life in, in the patients that come to us. Wow, that's amazing. We've actually run out of time. We've actually overran. Mm -hmm. um, but what mm -hmm. I would like to do is if you could contact me when you've got those numbers and come back and share it with us. Absolutely. We'll have a, a short, we'll have a small number soon. Um, within three months, we've got kind of a first go of about 50 patients that we're looking at with a particular cancer type mm -hmm. over a period of time. So we'll have some of that data, but it's going to be an ongoing ginormous undertaking um, starting from looking at what we've had in the past, plus starting to catalog all of our new um, that we'll hope to be sharing with all of you for years to come. Mm, wonderful. And training other doctors, I mean, that's the key, isn't it? It's to it pass on is. the knowledge. It is. You know, and that's the thing is I think that that one-on-one -on -one with patients I love, I miss, I miss that so much, but I also realized it was, not going, it was not working fast enough, big enough, large enough, scalable enough to make the big dent. And really the bottleneck was always the physician. So I could advise someone, I could consult with them, and I could do all of the work with them to help them understand why they got there and what they needed to do to change the course. But then they take that plan to their physician. The physician's like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this information. So that's where I realized that's where the training needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And we hope to have, um, you know, at least 50 doctors trained worldwide by year's end and hopefully keep adding to that every single year. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Well, Thank I'm you. so impressed with you, Nisha. I really am. <laughs> and it's my joy. <laughs> and thank you for being our guest today. And we will have you back. Looking forward. This show is sponsored by Mark Drugs, who specialize in the custom compounding of medications, assuring that the client gets the proper prescriptions for their unique needs and conditions. They work with practitioners integrating knowledge and treatment of experts to create comprehensive health plans. Visit markdrugs.com or call Roselle 630-529-3400 or Deerfield 
Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.